Well, open, if you would, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Chapter 18, as we saw, is the hinge where we see both deliverance and dwelling. Chapter 19, we move definitively to the dwelling portion of this book as God comes to stay with his people. Exodus 19, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the desert of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel." So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, please plow up our hearts to receive the seed of your word that it might grow and produce fruit. Help me to speak accurately concerning your mighty covenant. Help us to see your, your perspective on our trek through the wilderness of this world, that you are carrying us on eagles' wings, bringing us to yourself. Help us to obey your voice and keep your covenant, because the earth belongs to you. Thank you that this hour belongs to you. Come and meet with us here, in your word and over your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. The main stream of the narrative of Scripture since that point has been driven by the concern to get back into the presence of God. We're out of Eden. How do we go back to Eden? The cherub with the flaming sword guards it. The flood comes and destroys it. But the God who made Eden special is alive and well. He's just not receiving human visitors. Israel left Egypt. They were freed from, freed from Pharaoh. That's not enough. They're also freed for, freed for living with God. They come to Sinai, and at Sinai God will give them instructions on how to build him a tent so that he can move in with them into their camp and travel around the desert with them. Israel is returning to the presence of God. Chapter 19 shows that it introduces the period at Sinai. And in this period, 60 chapters of Revelation are given in the space of a single year. The rest of Exodus All of Leviticus, the first ten chapters of Numbers, take place at the base of Mount Sinai. So 60 chapters of Revelation in the space of one year, 
The most dense revelatory event in all of the Old Testament is God tells Israel, here is how you can return into my presence. It's called the Levitical system. It involves the tabernacle, sacrifices, priests, the whole nine yards. And we'll get into that soon in Exodus. But before God starts to describe that, he gives them this very brief summary through the mediator here at the beginning of the Sinai section. And he says, Obey my voice, keep my covenant, and be my special treasure. Those words are for Israel. Those words are for us. They are for the people of God, and we are God's people. So let's listen to where Israel met God, how God spoke to Israel, how Israel responded to God. Where did Israel meet God? Well, obviously at Mount Sinai. And the text tells us not only where, but also when. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out, on this day. Now that sounds very normal to us, reading in English. Our translators should do a better job because in Hebrew it sounds very abnormal. In Hebrew, every narrative unit begins with an and then. And of course, we've seen that to the point of exhaustion in Exodus, such that our translators delete that. Because in English, you shouldn't say and then at the beginning of every movement of the narrative. But this verse does not have it. This verse represents a clean break, a new start, perhaps typographically in English, that would be represented by a blank space of four or five empty lines on the page, or one of those asterisks, maybe even a new chapter, a part two of the book of Exodus. Here it is, in the third month, not, and then in the third month, it's just in the third month, and then it doesn't say on that day, it says on this day, as though this day, the day of arrival at Sinai is so important that it persists right up to the present time and beyond. This is not an event to be commemorated in the past. This is an event to be realized in the present. On this day, Israel arrived at Sinai. It's a mountain. It's a mountaintop experience, not psychologically. Obviously, if you read the rest of the story, psychologically, Sinai was a bit of a downer, particularly when it came to the golden calf incident. 3,000 Israelites getting killed and uh, etc. Moses being unable to enter the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. Uh, Nadab and Abihu getting killed in the middle of Leviticus. The bad things happened to Israel at Sinai. And we shouldn't forget that. It's Psychologically, it's not a mountaintop experience, but spiritually, it is a mountaintop experience. It's the people of God come to the presence of God and hear the voice of God. Now, when did this happen? In the third month. Now, when was it in the third month? The word month could also just mean new moon, and it could literally mean they left on a new moon day, and then there were two more, and they arrived, or there was one more, and then they arrived at Sinai on the third one. Or it could mean three months. It, we don't know for sure. The ancients, uh, Augustine, some rabbis, added it up like this. They said, in the third month means the first day of the third month. 
And so, remember, Passover was the night of the 14th of the first month. So that's 17 days left in the first month, 28-day month. 17 days left, or 31 days left in that month. 14 plus 17 is 31. Then you add 30 days in the second month. So 17 plus 30, you get Israel arriving at Sinai on the 47th day after Passover. And then depending on how you read Exodus 19, the law was maybe given on their third day at Sinai. And so with a little creative math and some guesstimating, you can make it come out that they left Egypt on Passover, which they did, and that they arrived at Sinai and received the law on Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover. Now, is that what Moses is trying to tell us? It's not clear. Possibly. If so, he doesn't come right out and say it. Sometime in the third month, if that is the first day of the third month, and if the first month was 31 days, and if the law was given on the third day at Sinai, then yes, it works. But if we think about it in terms of Israel leaves Egypt at Passover, they arrive at Sinai and get the law at Pentecost, we see right there in that mini contrast, the major contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant on Pentecost, the law is given. In the New Covenant on Pentecost, the Spirit is given. The law doesn't bring with it the power to obey. The Spirit is the one who gives us the power to obey the law. The Ten Commandments are holy, righteous, and good, and they will kill you. The Spirit is also holy, righteous, and good, but He is the one who gives life. He is the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And so, clearly, you know, whether Moses intends this contrast or not, there is a contrast between the giving of the law and the coming of the Spirit. The law is not opposed to the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is the one who makes the law work, or who makes us able to obey the law, to honor the law in our lives. Pentecost is when the law became possible. In the first sense, of course, when the law was written down on tables of stone. In the second sense, when the Spirit came into our hearts, came to the church and empowered us for obedience. So Israel arrives on the third day after the new moon, and then God speaks to Israel. And right away we see here, as we have already in the Bible, the Lord spoke to Moses, but here it becomes a very clear thing that Moses is the mediator. That God, when he has a message for Israel, does not send the message directly to Israel. God gives it to Moses and Moses relays it. And our passage is framed by that. The first words out of God's mouth are, tell this to Israel. Verse 4. And then our passage ends with Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 8. Moses is the go-between. God speaks to Moses. Moses passes it to the people. The people speak to Moses. Moses passes it to God. Moses goes between God and the people. Repeatedly, he climbs up Sinai to speak to God, and then he comes back down to talk to the people over and over here in Exodus 19. What 
is the narrative telling us? There's no way into the presence of God without a mediator. You, Joe Israelite, can't go charging up Sinai into the presence of God. And the second part of the chapter will make that very clear as we see next week. But already here at the beginning, the first words out of God's mouth are Moses passed this on to the group. You act as mediator. And then once God says, okay, Moses, pass it on, then he gets to the content of what he wants to say, which is this. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How things have changed. God introduces himself in chapter 3 as, I am the God of your father. In other words, you don't know me. I knew your dad. You haven't, we haven't met. But now how does God introduce himself? You've seen my work. We've just traveled together through the wilderness for 47 days. Now you know who I am. Now you've seen how I act, how I think, how I plagued Egypt. This is relationship. We do this in our human relationships. We appeal to, well, you were there. You've had this conversation. We've worked on this together. We've been down this road before. And God says it explicitly to Israel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. God is not bragging, but he is making it clear that the Exodus was his doing. Not, you've seen how you and I together had the power to beat Pharaoh. No, Israel did not have the power to beat Pharaoh. God sent all ten plagues. God brought Israel out. You've seen that. You know that it was all me, God says. And then he describes further how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Obviously a metaphor. There are no literal eagles anywhere in Exodus. We don't see that Israel got to the Red Sea and then said, how will we get across? And God sent a gigantic flock of eagles. Three Israelites mounted every eagle and they all flew across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. It took about 20 minutes. That would be even cooler than a Plantagenet coming and seeking the throne of England. But the text is very clear. Mile after dusty mile, they walked through the wilderness on their own two feet. The whole congregation of 500 or 600,000 men on foot. Exodus 13 or 14 clearly says. So how can it be that they've been walking through the desert for seven weeks and God says, you know that seven week trek through the desert? That was a flight on the back of an eagle. How do we put these two things together? The answer is it requires a whole lot of faith. To us, the Christian life is going to look like a trek on foot through the desert without water, without food, then without water again, and with enemies coming up and harassing and attacking us. That's what Moses described in chapters 16 and 17. But God describes it as, I put you on the back of an eagle and you flew right here with no difficulties or problems. 
Now that's one of the major challenges of the Christian life. To recognize God's work. God did the impossible. He freed them from Pharaoh. He brought two million people alive and in one piece to the base of Sinai to hear his word. And he's done the impossible again for us. He's delivered us from Satan's kingdom, forgiven us our sins, led us into his presence here in church and brought us in our vocation, in our place of work, in our place of living exactly where we need to be. And God tells us that was an eagle flight. I brought you to myself. And I think that destination is really the key. The destination was God the whole time. They're going to Sinai. That's because God is there. He will manifest his presence in a special way on Sinai. But he doesn't say, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to Maui. Or some other resort destination. He didn't bear us on eagle's wings to Disneyland or to the beach. He brought us on eagle's wings to himself. That's where we want to be, where we need to be, and where we will be if we obey God. Life with God is both. It's a trek through the desert, and it's a flight on an eagle. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. So if you say, my Christian life feels like Massa, Meribah, Rephidim, Mara, all these places that we've toured, you know, not enough food, not enough water, too much dust, too much walking. God says, I know. But guess how you came to me, Christian? You didn't have to climb a very long ladder all the way to heaven. I brought you to myself on an eagle. So learning to understand when we're in the presence of God and that that makes the desert crossing totally worth it. That's what God is calling Israel to do is he redefines their desert experience for them and says, essentially, no amount of walking or slogging would bring you into my presence. You don't get back to Eden by going on a very long hike. You get back to Eden only through the grace of God that lifts you on that eagle's back and brings you soaring into his presence. It's hard to explain. It's hard to practice, to live, just consciously say, I am in the presence of God. Yes, my larder is empty. There's no fruit on the vine. His larder is not going to be full anytime soon. But I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's what Habakkuk was learning to do. And that's what all of Israel is learning to do. As Moses comes down the mountain to them and says, You know what God calls our trip of the last seven weeks? He calls it flying. You thought it was walking. God calls it flying. So we'll come into his presence. He brings us there. And again, it starts with what God did in verse 4, the indicative, 
I conquered Egypt. I brought you to myself. And only then in verse 5 does it move to what we need to do in light of what God already did. Now, therefore, two connecting words that both point back to I brought you on the eagle's back. Now, because I brought you to myself, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. God recounts the history of their relationship. Here's where we've been together. We've been in Egypt. You've been rescued from Egypt and you've been brought to me. And then the demand, obey my voice, keep my covenant. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. To obey God's voice is to keep the covenant. Obedience is not optional. Obedience is a necessary part of the Christian life. If you're not obeying God, you're not a Christian. The Bible is very clear about that. The non-obeying Christian is the non-existent Christian. But also, obedience is the same thing as keeping the covenant. The covenant is God's relational bond to us. There's accidental relationships. Somebody I sat next to on the tour bus. And then there are committed relationships, and that's what a covenant is. It's a committed relationship. Where God swears and says, we are together, and we will always be together. We won't break up. We won't leave. We are formally committed to each other. So to keep the covenant, to stay in relationship to God, is to obey His voice, to listen to what He says, and to do it. And that's an if. That is a condition. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then what are the five promises? If you stay in relationship to God, what promises do you have? Go back, you bear. (laughs) Promises are said right here. First of all, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. You'll be a special possession on God's earth. Of course, the King James has, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. That word peculiar, segula, the special treasure, something that a king sets apart as his very own. The king has a lot of really nice things. There's one or two things that are his absolute favorites. That's the segula. That's what we are. God owns the entire earth. The whole cosmos is his. And out of everything that he's made, like sunrise in Yosemite, or the wealth of South Africa's diamond mines, or anything. He says, no, that's not my favorite. My favorite is you. I love my people. Out of everything that this planet, that this cosmos affords, it's those who obey me and keep my covenant. Deuteronomy 26 in the King James has the shorter and more memorable, you are a peculiar people. Again, that 17th century English for special, particular. We are God's peculiar people. That doesn't mean we're strange. Sometimes we are. It means that we are 
his delight. The thing that he sets apart for himself above and in preference to everything else, he has to remind him, I could choose anything in the whole earth and I choose you. That's the first benefit of being in covenant relationship to God. The second benefit, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You'll be royalty. Co-reigning with God. You're a kingdom. Hebrew word should probably be rendered royalty. Of course, in the ancient world, especially in Egypt, but in many other places, all the royals claim descent from the gods. My status as king of this little kingdom depends on my descent from the divine Ishtar, or you name it. Unless the Romans claim that they're descended from Aeneas, who himself is descended from the goddess Venus, and Pharaoh claims to be descended from such and such god, I forget who, and that's why he's Pharaoh and you're not. But God says to his people, you're all royalty. You may not feel like a queen today. You may not look like a king. God says to these people who until seven weeks ago had been slaves, you are royalty. You are a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. So you're not just kings, you're also priests. What does a priest do? He comes into the presence of God. That's the fundamental thing that a priest can do. You have access. You are allowed in God's house. It becomes, in a certain sense, your house too. Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you are a king, a queen, a priest when you're in relationship to God. And you're also holy. Holy means existing for God. God changes your status from common or profane to holy. You're set apart. He calls you his special treasure and simultaneously he changes your status so that your existence, the purpose of your life, is to serve, to glorify, to enjoy him forever. Another benefit of being in relationship with God. And then finally, they are a nation. They were a family. The children of Abraham and then the children of Israel. But now you're not just a family or even a clan. You are a full-scale nation. And of course, the rest of the history will tell how they go to Canaan and become a geopolitical entity, a nation with its own borders and its own land. That's God's promise to those who are his people. And how does that come into the New Testament? I talked this morning about there is no ethnic or national component to the gospel today, and that's true. But we are the nation of the redeemed. We will be in heaven. There, all God's people will be a household, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, but also a nation living together as one people, united in customs and laws under the rule of King Jesus. Five promises. Every one of them 
should be enough to keep you going for the rest of your life as you slog through the desert. I'm royal. I'm priestly. I'm holy. I'm part of a nation. This is God's promise to everyone who obeys His voice and keeps His covenant. He doesn't say, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, I will plague the Egyptians and carry you on eagles' wings to myself. He says, now that I've plagued the Egyptians and delivered you from Satan's kingdom and carried you on eagles' wings to myself, now that you're with me, now that you're mine, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You're saved, and you're saved conditionally, but the condition comes after the salvation. Now that you're saved, obey the voice, keep the covenant. That's God's word to us. Because the earth is His, and because He brought us out of Egypt and bore us on eagles' wings. So how does Israel respond? Well, Moses comes down and delivers the message. He calls the elders who disseminate the message. And then the people answer and commit to obey God's voice and keep His covenant. This is the prologue to everything that happens at Sinai. God proposes in very short form the gospel, I delivered you. Now that you're delivered, now that you're with me, now that you're mine, obey my voice and keep my covenant. And the people say, we want to do that. We want to obey and keep this covenant. And that, I'm sure, is why you're here tonight, that your heart is saying the same thing. Yes, I want to obey God's voice. I want to keep God's covenant. So notice, Moses delivers the message again. The mediator is how you hear from God. We hear from the Father only through Christ. Israel hears from God only through Moses. There is no covenant, there is no relationship without that mediator. And this is why the Trinity is important. We connect with God the Father only through Christ the mediator. You take Moses out of, out of the scene, and Israel is standing in front of Sinai, but they don't know what God wants. They can't hear from Him. And in the same way, the elders convey the message. That continues to be the case. The elders are the ones who teach the church even now. who deliberately spend time with Christ and in the Word and then pass on the message. We are not sub-mediators, but we are, as pastors and elders, the ones who have time to hear the Word of God and communicate the Word of God to the people of God. That pattern is already here at Mount Sinai. So the people hear from God and accept the covenant. They say, yes, we agree that we just came on eagles' wings. We agree that we're now in the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And we want to obey His voice and keep His covenant. So make that the cry of your heart tonight too. God, I want to obey Your voice. I want to keep Your covenant. I want to be a royal priest and a holy nation.
in Christ, you are a royal priest, a holy nation. So keep His covenant. Obey His voice. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes to see how You brought us to Yourself on eagles' wings. Father, help us to get out of our heads the idea that the Christian life has been 100% our work and that we're really tired of doing it. And open our eyes to see how You have flown us directly into Your presence. We pray that You would help us to obey Your voice and keep Your covenant. Thank You that Your deliverance came first. And that now you say, I will come and dwell with you if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. Help us to do that. We want to do that. We ask your forgiveness for failing to obey your voice, for breaking your covenant. Father, help us to obey you and keep your covenant. To listen to your commands and to do what you tell us. Pray these things in the name of your risen Son. Jesus our Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep and mediator of the covenant. Amen.